Matthew 17. We're taking verses 14 to 20. Moving right through, line upon line, through the book of Matthew. Go ahead and read it first, which is our custom. And they, they, uh, when they came to the crowd, verse 14, a man came up to him, Jesus, kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures. And he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Um, number one, uh, a couple things as we, as we start. Uh, I'm not going to comment on what some of you may have in your Bibles as verse 21, because it's not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And so I'm just going to let you know that if you have a Bible with verse 21, it's, it's in the more recent Greek manuscripts is where that shows up, but not in the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. So if you have an NASV or you have an ESV like mine, it's absent. It goes from verse 20 to 22, and that's the way I'm going to preach this. So uh, you can have fun with that controversial, weird awkward verse that's a recipe for how to cast out these kind of demons and you can go home and do your research on it you're welcome for nothing uh number two i hate mustard i'm not a fan uh at all um but regardless of my personal feelings on that um i want us to acknowledge here when you read through this like there's no doubt that jesus is just a master teacher this guy is a master teacher And one of the things a master teacher does is he takes everyday things, familiar things to you and I, and he communicates them into higher truths so that we can actually grab hold of them. That's what a good teacher does, and he does this again here today. Um, I also want to say that the scriptures, teachings like this from Jesus are some of the most controversial and divisive and dangerous even Scriptures that we can try to do something with if we do not season it with other scriptures. With other scriptures. Scripture interprets scripture. We all know that, right? We've all heard that. Scripture interprets scripture in very large part. If it does not, it's easy for us to end up with nonsense. It's easy for us to end up with a new church and a new denomination. And a new group of people meeting in a living room somewhere. This is how it works, right? Um, Not seasoning passages in our Bible, doctrines in our Bible, with other verses on it leads oftentimes to false doctrine and even heresy. And we want to avoid that. We don't want to do that here. We want to be careful with what we have. Therefore, we must always be careful not to isolate Scripture. To not do so is to rightly divide the word of truth. 
right? This is good. Um, this is right. This is wise to rightly divide the word of truth. To collect all the evidence on any given subject is to be able to put that doctrine rightly, rightly in its place, okay? Having said that, we must do the same with the red letters. If Paul is right, when Paul speaks to Timothy, and we believe he is, in, in saying all scripture is breathed out by God, then Paul is saying that the red letter and the black letter are on the same level. They're on the same level. So what Jesus actually spoke as he lived on earth coming out of his mouth and what he speaks through people like Paul or someone like Peter or someone like James, they're on the same level because we have one author right here with many different instruments that he chose to write through, right? So it's all on the same level. It's on the same level because it all comes from the same source, the mouth of God. Having said all that, we're going to jump around a little bit today. That's why I qualified it that way. Um, we're going to move around to try to discover this, this truth or what we can properly and what's actually being uh, said here. We want the intention of what Jesus is teaching. So first we have verses 14 and 15. They, uh, they came uh, to the crowd, Jesus and his disciples, and a man comes up to Jesus and kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So we have a man here who's overwhelmed with uh, concern. Because he's a man whose greatest possession, his child, is in turmoil. Like something's not right with his kid. This is a man whose greatest need is to see his son healed. To see his son fixed. And so right off the bat, a lot of us can relate to this this morning. Can't we? Right? Like some of us can feel this. How many of us have that child today? All right, just me. And Craig, I need that barb. Like, we all have people in our life, but like that child. And I don't know how many times me and my wife have done this. Like, I, I see us here for the last five years. We've been praying for this kid that's been in dark places with dark people doing dark things that's just moving him further and further and further away from the Lord. And with tears and with agony, like a nightmare that we cannot wake up from, we have been going to God because we know that he's the only one that can fix something like this. And nothing's happening. And I've shared this with you before. And um, we'll come back to that. But I know that we can all relate. The reason that this consumes our life so much and our prayer time so much and our tears and our thoughts and our heart so much is because our son is one of the most important things that we have. We love him so much, more than, more than anything. And with that love, all we've ever wanted for our kids is that they would know the living God. I don't care if they work at a gas station the rest of their life and never give us grandkids. I don't care what their life looks like. I just want them to know Christ. That's it, to know Jesus. And, and so I, I get this, like I, I feel this. When I read through this text, I must and you must first and foremost continue to do what this guy did. It's easy to get mad and frustrated at God. I have been doing that. It's not healthy. It's not good. We must continue to do, whether we're getting immediate results or not, what this guy did, which is go to Jesus, don't stop. I don't know where else to go. 
even though I haven't got an answer or a resolution from this, I know, like Peter, like, you alone have the words of life still. Even though you're not doing this thing, there is nowhere else to go. There is nothing else capable of fixing this. And, and this guy does this. He, he goes to Jesus. Not only that, but he goes to Jesus in a certain way. I want you to notice the sequence, the characteristics of this guy's approach to Christ, right? So for, first he comes, first he seeks, right? We see that there. Then he kneels. So we have, um, and I, I'm not saying that we have to kneel in order for God to hear us, but the greater thing is that there's a humility when we come before God. So we don't come demanding things like I am so awesome at. We come with humility, right? Like this guy comes and he kneels as if he knew that Jesus is royalty, right? Like a king even to him. And, and then he even addresses him next as Lord, calls him master, meaning that he's placing himself underneath the sovereign works and authority of the person of Jesus, right? And, and, and then finally he asks for mercy. He asks for mercy as if, as if Jesus is the only one who's able to do this thing, to fix this circumstance, right? As if Jesus actually has the power to do so. This is really cool, this, this little sequence that we have here. So, um, so we, can, we can actually see in the sequence what's really, really going on in the story already, can't we? It's almost like we can, we can go from the back of the story right back up to the front and kind of get um, the, um, the meat of, of what we should walk away from in, in this guy's approach, in his posture, in his confession, in his supplication, right? Asking Jesus for something that he needs, we can see that he had a settled faith already in Jesus by approaching the way he did. This guy was settled in who he thought Jesus was and what he thought Jesus was capable of, right? which is basically the subject and the point of this whole text. It is Jesus who is the object and the strength of our faith, which is why our faith is able to be big at times and effectual at times. It's not us apart from Jesus. It's not because we have faith in faith, right? I hate going into, I was a chimney guy for years, right? So my, like, my job took me into people's houses. And I don't, like one of the most popular things that I would see over and over again in people's houses were those big signs that said, faith. Hope, love, across the living room wall, you know, or the dining room wall. And it's like, in what? You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, there's nothing to qualify what those things are in. They're just words that we really like. They're words that, that make us feel good. But we don't have faith in faith, and we don't have hope in hope, and we don't have love in love. Like, we, we have faith in Christ. We have hope in Christ. He's the object of our faith of our hope, the source of our love, when we possess any, right? It's him. Um, it is Jesus who's the object and the strength of our faith. We see this truth over and over and over again in our gospel narratives, don't we? Do you remember the woman who touched Jesus' garment? Was it back in like maybe Matthew 9, right? And she had this medical issue um, that she, um, she discharged blood continuously. And I don't even want to know what that is. I don't even think we should talk about it. Uh, but we do know uh, that it was a serious condition that no one was able to help her with. 
like no one was able to help her with. And so she, she knew that, 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 that Jesus, some, for some reason, in some way, that she just needed a touch from Christ, and she would be healed. And so she finds him in a crowd. She comes up behind him. She gets a touch of, like, touches his garment, right? And uh, Jesus is like, who touched me? As if he didn't know, and he turns around, and he, he looks right at her. But she's thinking to herself, like, if I, if I could only, if I could only even touch him, I'm going to be fine, right? And Jesus looks at her after it happens and says, your faith, your faith has made you well. That faith is not in the garment. It was in Christ that she was made well. It was in Christ that her faith was substantiated, right? And, uh, and so we see, we see this all over the place, right? Um, this man here seems to have the same faith in Jesus. Now, the issue this man has is that the son is demon-possessed, right? Like if we sneak and cheat, you know, down in verse 18, like it tells us so. It tells us that that's what's going on. Some translations may read as though it's just a medical condition, like epilepsy or something like that. But the overall context should lead us to a conclusion that, that, that the manifestations, the physical manifestations that are going on with this young man are a result of demonic possession. That's what's happening. Um, in fact, some translations say lunatic. Like, God, have mercy on me because my son's a lunatic, is what it actually says. Now, to you and I, that's like completely degrading and disrespectful. But back in the day, that word comes from, well, luna. What does that sound like to you? Yeah, lunar, right? And so it was used back then when people would stare at the moon too long. They would be said to have gone over the moon, like cuckoo, right? And that's where we get lunatic from. It's just someone who doesn't seem to be uh, acting right, thinking right, like just doing weird, weird stuff. And, he, and that's basically what's being communicated is my, my son's not normal. There's things going on, things he's doing, things he's walking in, ways he's living in which are not normal. They don't make, they're nutty, okay? They're crazy. So it's like one who is uh, starstruck, you know, he's a, he's a lunatic. But nonetheless, whatever the proper description is, the result is that the son has been obviously losing control of himself here, right? In ways that he's a danger to himself, Maybe even a danger to others. He says that he falls into the fire, he falls into the water, like this guy is, is um, unable to keep himself in check anymore. So this is a worry. Like this is a, this is a, a concern. And so the man goes on to say, verse 16, uh, I, brought, I brought him to your disciples and uh, they couldn't heal him. I brought him to your boys and uh, your boys weren't able to uh, do anything for him. I brought him to those who follow you and who live with you and who learn from you, but they couldn't fix him. And this is interesting in that this guy brought his son to men first. This is kind of interesting. Um, and these men, of course, were unable and capable of fixing uh, this guy's need. Um, how we could preach a full sermon just on this right here, Right? Um, this is what we do, isn't it, in our lives? This is what we do, is we have a need and we go to all kinds of places and people and things to fix that need other than the one who can fix it, 
right? We exhaust every other possibility before we go to the one who is able to fix it, right? We look everywhere and to everything and pursue everyone while searching for that one thing that all those things are incapable of providing. And I don't think that's necessarily what this guy was doing, as we already uh, mentioned by going to the disciples first, but it, but it is amazing how often we do. It is amazing how often we do this. Um, not only outside the church, but even in the church, how often we rely on men rather than Jesus, right? You guys remember like, um, like the, the letter to Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. The seven letters go out to the seven churches, and what was Jesus's? That's the famous, like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not talking to a non-believer. He's talking to the church because what they've done is they've, they've, they've gotten saved apparently by Jesus and they've locked themselves up in their church so that they can do their little thing and they have no need of Jesus anymore, right? It's all about them. And we do so much of this in the church. This is why we see so much burnout with so many, so many pastors falling from their position and so many churches fragmenting and ending in a bad story that scars people for the rest of their lives is because we're coming in and we're following a personality and a person rather than Jesus, right? And so, like, again, this is something that, that we can talk all day about, but we all have those proverbial saviors that are not the savior. And we need to make sure that we are keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the Savior. So this man tells Jesus that he went to his followers first, but they couldn't handle the task. And Jesus' response is a bit surprising. Verse uh, 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Like, bring him here. Bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. Right? Um, This is a bit shocking (laughs) to me. I don't know about to you. I don't know how it reads in your brain when you read it, but this is a bit shocking to read because honestly, it comes off a bit rude to me. And um, I mean, Jesus seems genuinely bothered, right? He seems genuinely like like annoyed here, like frustrated, as if maybe maybe even the needy, those in need, are starting to wear on him, right? And and we don't see this from Jesus that often. I feel, like, I feel like he does this with me all the time. <laughs> this is exactly how I see it in my brain. Like when I'm coming to him over and over again with the same thing, or Lord, get me out of this one, like I promise, like da-da-da-da-da. And he's just like, really? Like how, how long, man, do I have to bear with you? You know? So I see it for me that this is how he responds. But like when we see Jesus in the scriptures, like this really isn't what we see from him, right? Um, we, we, we really see um, just an endless supply of patience from Jesus, typically, and kindness and meekness, and he's mild, right? He's humble, he's forgiving, he's gentle, he's full of grace, he's full of grace. Um, but here he just kind of lets them have it, like he kind of lets us have it, you know what I mean? Um, and then he, he tells them why. That's the, that's the good part, is we don't have to sit around and go like, what was it they did? Like, He tells them why. Because they're a faithless and a twisted people. A faithless and a twisted people. And the the question kind of becomes like who? Like who exactly is he talking to here? Um, Because he says generation. We get that. But but, but that that can be something broad or it can be meant narrow depending on who he's directing 
this statement towards. He could be looking at the disciples and going, You're, like, how long do I need to deal with, with you guys, this generation? You know what I mean? Or it could be to everybody. Like, I don't know. So, like, like to me, it seems almost unlikely that Jesus would be directing his disdain at, at the father of this boy. Like, that seems kind of un- unlikely, given what we already know about him, because we've already seen that this dude came, he came with faith to Jesus. He came with faith in Jesus. So it seems, right? On the other hand, he did go to the disciples first. I don't know, right? Uh, it's easier for me to think that, that Jesus is directing his disciples because they're the ones who have front row seats to all of his miracles and all of his healings and his divinity every single day, and yet they seem to be empty of faith still. So that just makes the most sense to me. How long am I to bear with you? How long before you get it? He says, basically. And again, oh, how this is, this is true for me. I, I feel like this would be the, the audible response um, on most days from Jesus, right? But thankfully, thankfully, praise God, Jesus caps this rebuke with reception, ultimately. With reception. Bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. Like, nevertheless, let's do this. Like, I am willing and I am able. Let's do this. I need to remember that part. I need to remember that part. And so do you. So verse, verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon. And the demon came out of the boy. And the boy was healed instantly. So first Jesus rebukes the people. Then he rebukes the demon. Right? Um, Jesus commands the demon to come out, and guess what? It had no choice but to come out. No choice but to come out. Um, In fact, it could do nothing other than obey the words of Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the authority, capital A, having jurisdiction. He is the authority. Jesus is the reigning Lord over all that exists. Sin, death, and Satan. All of it. All of our biggest nightmares, all of our biggest giants, all the scariest things that are above our pay grade are not above his. When we, when you and I have something in our lives that's overwhelming us, we need to go to someone who can overwhelm it. And that is the God of the universe. That is Christ, and he's displaying that here once again, that he has sovereign power and authority over all things, right? He, in fact, remember back to Matthew chapter 12? Jesus is doing a lot of kingdom teaching about the kingdom of God, and there's a, a parable he goes into where, where he says that um, uh, if you're going to plunder a strong man's house, you've got to bind him first. This is what we're talking about here. This is another example of the stronger man coming to the strong man's house, earth, the world, Tying him up so that he can plunder his house. That's what we see every time Jesus has authority and casts out demons and tells them where to go. He's just binding the strong man. He's cleaning house. And he's doing it uh, again right here. And so this is how Jesus displays his earthly power and and authority over all that is. You ready? This is going to sound really weird. Um, How he does that when he came as a man was by faith. Well, wait a minute, like, wasn't he God? Like, he doesn't need faith. Like, he knows, well, he was fully God, 
but when he came, he was also fully man. This is the hypostatic union, right? This is that million-dollar word that you guys have heard a few times. Fully God, fully man, simultaneously at the same time. What do you hear him saying over and over and over again about how he lived and why he was doing what he was doing? That he, that he was, must do the will of the Father. It was full dependence on God. But you can see the humanity in the way that he lived and even much of what he said. Look at him in the garden, right? The night he was betrayed, like, Lord, if there's any other way, like, let's go to plan B. You know what I mean? Like, let's do something else. Like, like he, he knows that what's about to come is the worst. And so he's having to trust. He's having to lean on the Father, right? When's, when, when are all these things going to happen, Lord, as far as your return and the kingdom being set up? I don't know the day or the hour. Well, wait, you're God, right? Like there were things that he, uh, the, the kenosis, there were things he emptied himself of when he became 100% man. And, uh, and so Jesus, I believe what we're seeing here, we can discuss this later if you want to, did what he did, casting this demon out, healing this child by faith, by faith. Um, in that he lives dependent and committed in complete devotion in and to the Father, regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he feels, right? This is faith. He relies on the Father. He trusts in the Father fully. Um, uh, in other words, he walks actively in a big faith, in a big faith as a human. This is the difference between these guys, his disciples, and him, this is the big difference between you and I and him on most days. Um, and it's made clear in 19 and 20, let's read both of those, the disciples came to Jesus privately after that, and they're like, why could, couldn't we cast him out? Like, why couldn't we do what you just did, right? And he says to him, because your faith is too small. Like, you have little faith. You have little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. These are beautiful words that Jesus just said, 19 or 20, right? And they're also words that can get a lot of people in a lot of trouble, that they're not careful with them, right? Um. They come to him and they say, how come you could do what you just did, but we could not, right? Um, the disciples ask. Response, because you do not possess a faith like mine. It's basically what he's saying. Because you do not possess a faith like mine. So when Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. When he says that, he's not saying, go and figure out how to have more faith. Go figure out how to have bigger faith and better faith. Like, good luck with that. Right? He's not saying that. He's, he's saying, you don't have this kind of faith. But I have this kind of faith. I have this kind of faith. Because it's directly connected to what it is he just did, that faith, that statement about faith. This is why through him, are you ready? 
all things are possible. Keyword, him. Him. People remove that word all the time, and then they go out and do stupid things for Jesus, and they're just horrible testimonies. Him. He's the difference. Because this is true, this boy is healed. Because this is true, the father of this boy is relieved. See, this is where the word faith movement gets it all wrong. I'm sorry, I'm not here to try to offend people, but I am here to try to shepherd you and to caution you when there's some stuff out there that's more popular than it should be in the Christian world. And it's just dangerous stuff. One of them is the word faith movement. That's not new. It's been around a while, but it seems to be growing and growing and growing stronger all the time. This is where they get the word faith movement wrong. I'm in Jesus. I'm a friend of Jesus. I spend time with Jesus. I know Jesus. I go to church. Therefore, I am like Jesus in what I'm able to do. Some of them may not admit that. This is exactly how they live and how they teach, how they act, how they manifest the things that they attempt to manifest. Because after all, I could do all things through a verse that's taken out of context, right? All right. Got one laugh. Good. Before we know it, if we're doing this, we're not looking to, relying on, depending on Jesus any longer, but we're relying on ourselves. We're relying on our ability and our faith in ourselves to produce miraculous things. And once it becomes about ourselves, the word faith movement's demands and incantations become about what they want and what uh, they want to see and what they want to do and what they want to produce rather than him and what he wants to do and what he wants to see and what he wants to produce. It's a slippery slope. We end up like Simon the Magician. You guys remember this guy, right? What is it, Acts chapter 8? Right? This dude was a magician, like he was a you know, prehistoric Chris Angel or something. Like he was, he was doing things like so believable and so nuts, like his bag of tricks was so rad and cutting edge that like everybody at the time looked at this guy and said like, this dude does works from God. And he's just a magician. They're like, this guy does God stuff. Right? And it says that all the people at that time were amazed. And then you've got Philip there, who's over here off to the side, and uh, he's preaching the gospel and people are getting saved, right? Where it gets back to Jerusalem, gets back to the other apostles, they hear about it. So uh, they, they, ma- they make a trip over to that town to see what, all, what the buzz is going on with the gospel. And they start laying hands on people and people are receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon looks at that and goes, I don't have that trick. I, I need that trick. I need that trick in my bag. And here's one of the weirdest things is that dude got saved. The text actually says that he was one of the ones that believed the gospel that Philip was preaching. But when he saw the, 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 you know, the apostles come into town and lay their hands on people and the Holy Spirit was coming upon people at that point, he's like, okay, I need that. And so he goes to him and he's like, how do I get that? Like, can, can you show me how to, how to do that trick, right? And Peter and them knowing, knowing that he was all about exploitation, like this was going to be all about him, Uh, he gets heavily and sternly rebuked. This is what so many people are doing in the church today. They're just like Simon. They're looking at things that God can do in the name of a big faith and going, like, I want to do that. And a lot of them are getting fat over it, like lining their pockets 
heavily over this stuff. This is what we've seen in our word faith communities largely. Leonard Ravenhill bluntly and bravely said, this is a day of thin theology and fat preachers. And it's true. Our Bible teaching that goes on in most churches and most pulpits across this land is razor thin and shallow as far as what we talk about and what we emphasize, right? But man, it's good business. (laughs) It's really good business. Got a lot of people doing well on it, right? We are busting at the seams with magicians and with entertainers and with deceivers, right? All under the banner of big faith. And this is why it's so dangerous for us to isolate and emphasize texts like this for ourselves on their own when it comes to things like the subject of an active faith and a big faith, okay? Because when we do, we think a real faith looks like an exorcism and a mountain being moved, right? But Jesus here is not advocating for a faith that changes the topography of the landscape. He's not saying like, if you had a faith this big, you can go move that mountain. So like, wouldn't that be cool? Go, go give it a shot. He's not saying that. That serves no purpose. What he is saying is that faith runs counter to that which we think is possible due to him. Due to him. Let me say that again. Faith, a big faith, is possible um, as far as being something that runs counter to that which we think is possible due to him. Because with him, all things are possible, right? So yes, a real active faith should cause those around us to sit up and take notice, but it's not necessarily for the reasons that you and I think all the time. I mean, if you look at even books like, um, like, like Peter, where the church is heavily persecuted, When is it that people are going to come to them and and go like, oh my gosh, like, tell me, tell me the reason for the hope that's in you. What is it that does that? Suffering. Well, like a big faith even allows us to suffer well. It allows the Christian to respond in a way that a normal person would not respond when they're faced with opposition and persecution and pressure. That's when people sit up and notice a big faith is when we're able to walk in the trial like Jesus did. And it makes no sense to a watching world. This is miraculous. And this is what a big faith does. You will even see this if you flip over to Hebrews. We're not going to go there, but Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith, the entire chapter, right? By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this by faith, Moses. And then you get to the bottom and it's like, by faith, these people went to the chopping block and were sawn in half, right? And like walked around desolate, like the beasts of the field, like wearing animal skin because everything was taken away from them for following Christ. Like, the, like this is when people, it, it, what, what does it, like what causes people to do that? A big faith that Jesus is real that eternity is real, that the kingdom is real, that the promises are real, that the forgiveness of sin is real, that hell is real, that glory is real. It, like all of that, belief in all of that is what causes people to not recant. Not only suffer, but suffer well. 
it's weird how most of the word faith movement that embraces a text like this and looks at exorcisms and only things that heal, only things that do good, only things that repair, they're also the ones that are, that are most prosperity-minded in their theology. That's no coincidence. They are people who reject a theology of suffering. But Jesus didn't. Do you know how these guys died that Jesus is talking to in Matthew 17? His disciples? Do you know how they died? Do you know what their lives looked like before they died? Yeah, sign me up. I want, I want to go be a part of that. That looks fantastic. They didn't live like 75% of the pastors that are beyond pulpits today. They lived very different and their lives looked very different. Why? Because they believed with a big faith that Jesus is real and that the cross is real and that the empty tomb is real and that the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God is real. In other words, Jesus, right now, regardless of what you feel or what you think or what you see or don't see, is over everything. He's got this. He's got you. A big faith is impossible without him. He showed us what faith the size of a mustard seed looks like. He's not necessarily saying, go out and figure out how to get it that big. He's saying, that's what I have. Stick close to me. We good? Lord, thank you for this day. Even though it was um, in many ways a challenge, we thank you for your faithfulness, God. We thank you for your patience. I, I feel this text. I see all of my deficits in all the ways that I am so weak when I read a text like this. And I, I do want more faith. I, I do want more of you. I know that's the key. And so I pray that we would have that constant hunger as a people more of you. Give us, give us more of you. Maybe, may we rely on you more, depend on you more, trust you more every day, every moment of every day. I pray that you would be glorified ultimately in our lives, that which comes out of our lives, that people would scratch their head and go, what's, what's going on? What is this? And we know that it will be because of you, and we will tell them. And so, Thank you again for, for just recording these things, for preserving these things so that we, 2,000 years later, can sit here and be fed just like they were back then when you said them. And it's in your name that we pray and we, we thank you. Amen. Uh, oh, yeah, we do. Another song. <laughs>